0: Scripture lesson for this Palm Sunday comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. Listen now for God's word to you. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find there You will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road, and as he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, and you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So let me just say, before I get started here this morning, uh, this is the third time that I've made an attempt at preaching some version of this sermon. Um, the first time I tried to preach it was when Axel was born and he had a NICU stay and I missed Palm Sunday that year. The second time was last year and I was going to preach this, some version of this sermon. And uh, then, of course, I got a nice little illness from Axel at daycare and I missed Palm Sunday last year. Y'all remember that? Um, and so this is my third attempt. The sermon feels a little bit cursed to me. Um, so I, yeah, I'm going to give it all to you. So I hope like a portal to another dimension doesn't open up while I'm preaching this or something like that. So, um. Anyway, in, the, in November of 2016, Heather and I were glued to our television screens as we watched Game 7 of the World Series. It was the first World Series in my entire life where I had a vested interest in the outcome, because for the first time in decades, for the first time since World War II, the Chicago Cubs were actually playing in the World Series, and for the first time in over a century, they were trying to forever shed that moniker of being the lovable losers, and so... Heather and I watched late into the night, watched the game, and our hopes rose. It looked like the Cubs were actually going to do it. And then they came crashing back down. It looked like the Cubs were going to do what they always do, throw the game away and break our hearts. And then, of course, they finally did win. All of those years of suffering, they they won the World Series for the first time in 108 years. And it was an amazing moment. And I've often said that unless you grew up as a Cubs fan, and you knew the heartache, you knew the the pain of watching your team lose year after year. You couldn't understand what that moment meant, but I realize I'm talking to a bunch of Lions fans here this morning. And you all might understand some measure of that suffering, and I so badly want for all of you to to experience that championship, that long-awaited-for victory. And so, of course, after every championship across all of sports, there's a uh, victory parade that goes through the, the team's home city. And uh, this was no different here. And so the Cubs had planned for this victory parade through the city, and it reminded me of the parades of my childhood. It seemed like an annual tradition where it seemed like every year we would celebrate the latest Chicago Bulls championship. Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Phil Jackson, and the great throngs of the Chicago area celebrating the Bulls' latest championship. But this one felt even more important, and I really desperately wanted to be at that parade. Uh, but of course, I lived in Princeton, New Jersey at the time. Um, it's a rather long commute from Princeton, New Jersey to downtown Chicago. And I had thought about buying a plane ticket, going into debt just to get a plane ticket to go to this victory parade, but it happened so quickly that I I didn't get a chance to to do that. And so I was relegated to watching that parade on my couch in my apartment in New Jersey. And what I watched was an amazing sight. So the city of Chicago, the population is three million people, But that day, there were 5 million people participating in the Cubs' victory parade. And it is now listed as the seventh largest gathering in human history. Um, Say what you want about Chicagoans, but we are fanatical about our sports. It was a, a parade that we had long hoped for, a parade that we doubted would ever happen. But there it was, happening right before our eyes. This morning, we encounter another parade that's been long in the making, a parade that people had longed, hoped for, long waited for to arrive, a, a parade that perhaps some people doubted would ever happen, and, and yet here it was, right in front of their eyes, a, a parade that's the fulfillment of those ancient words from the, the prophet Zechariah. We, we heard those in, as our call to worship here this morning, where the, the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. I imagine that there were people in that crowd who had been hearing these words for generations, wondering if it would ever happen, and now here it is. Jesus, the one that they believed was the Messiah, the long-awaited for king, was was riding into Jerusalem. And one of the things that we've we noticed in Jesus' life as it's recorded in the Gospels is that, that people seem to have a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings about the sort of king that Jesus is going to be. Everyone thinks of, of him as a king in the ways that we typically think of kings, as a, a conquering hero, as one who's going to restore national pride and glory, one who has a, an army marching around him. I think it's a, a safe assumption that everyone who read those words, when they imagined that parade... They were imagining that large military procession, a a kingdom that had thrown off the Romans, thrown off foreign occupation, made them the envy of the entire world. That was the the sort of parade that Jerusalem was used to. See, Jerusalem sat at the crossroads of the the major empires of the ancient world. It was kind of a a waypoint as these empires went on their expansive missions across much of the known world at the time. And, And when they would conquer Jerusalem, as they would with other cities... They would parade in this show of victory, in this show of conquest. That's what Alexander the Great did when he conquered Jerusalem. He paraded through the city. In fact, every year at this time there was a parade by the Romans into the city. Every year at this time of Passover, there was a parade by the Romans in a show of force into the city. At Passover, um, you have this like the swelling of the population. Of Jerusalem. So you have all of these pilgrims coming from the Jewish diaspora all across the empire, even beyond its borders, coming to offer sacrifices in the, in the temple. And um, coming to offer sacrifices in the temple. And so uh, they're coming and they're not only offering sacrifices, but they're remembering the events of the Exodus. The events where God liberated their ancestors from enslavement from a foreign empire and so some of them, maybe not all of them, but a good number of them are, are looking around the city streets, and they see their Roman occupiers walking around. And they begin to think, wouldn't it be great if God did the same thing again? Wouldn't it be great if God threw off this foreign empire, this occupying force? And so communities start to form, little groups start to form, ideas start to spread. And even among the more extremist populations, people like uh, the zealots, they might start to Try and force God's hand with violent revolution. Think about the, the events at the end of this week. the, the man named Barabbas. He was imprisoned before being a violent insurrectionist, someone who wants to violently overthrow the Roman government. And so the responsibility for maintaining peace and order in the city of Jerusalem fell to the Roman governor who at this time is Pontius Pilate, a name that we all recognize, someone who will feature prominently in the events of the, of the end of the week. Uh, they had to keep peace. There was a, a permanent garrison of Roman soldiers that were stationed in Jerusalem. But during times like Passover, they needed more to maintain the peace. So John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg in their book, The Last Week, help us to understand what's happening. So Pontius Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem. Uh, even though it's the population and cultural center of the territory he ruled, but he lived 60 miles to the west uh, in the newly constructed city of Caesarea Maritima, which is really fun to say. Caesarea Maritima. Um, you have all these fun names in the Bible, um, which I know when I read my own scripture. Sometimes you're glad that I'm not that you're not the one having to read those things. Um, Caesarea Maritima. So Caesarea Maritima is a place that's befitting of a Roman governor. It's a place of luxury. It sits right on the, on the Mediterranean Sea. Um, it has all the creature comforts of home. It's a place that can help Pilate forget that he is the governor of some rotten, out, rotten outposts in the Roman Empire, um, a place for him to sort of earn his stripes while he continues to, to climb up the ladder. But every year during Passover, duty calls. And so he has to ride into Jerusalem to maintain the peace. It wouldn't look good on his record. It wouldn't look good to the emperor if there was an uprising on his watch. So he gets all of his soldiers. They all go down into the armory. They gather their, their armor. They gather their, their swords and their spears. They get the Roman standards. They mount their war horses, and they ride toward Jerusalem. They, they parade into this city from the west In this show of force, during this time where the people are remembering God's liberating activity, it's sort of this crass reminder that they are under a foreign occupation. A way of saying, talk about the liberating activity of God all you want. Remember who's in charge. Remember who controls your lives. So while all of this is happening on the west side of Jerusalem, on the east, just a few miles from the, the city's borders, uh, near the little towns of Bethany and Bethpage, near the Mount of Olives, a place where tradition said the Messiah would appear. There's another little parade forming. I know Jesus knows that Pilate does this every single year. He's been to Jerusalem before. He knows that this happens every single year, And so, and so what Jesus does on this Sunday that we've come to know as Palm Sunday is not An accident. It's not some fateful fulfillment of prophecy. It's an intentional action on Jesus' part. Now, Jesus, in a sense, stages a counter demonstration. Uh, He he parodies royal power. He parodies imperial ideology. He parodies all the things that they embody of of domination and control and dehumanization. And he marches into uh, the city of Jerusalem. It's this little parody parade, this prophetic demonstration. And in this little parody parade, There are no war horses, but Jesus rides on a donkey that's never been ridden before. Uh, Jesus carries no weapons with him, but the people around him wave palm branches and shout, uh, Hosanna. Uh, There are no soldiers, but there are the ragtag masses that seem to follow Jesus everywhere. And as this parade begins, as Jesus looks down the road, and as they continue on, he can see the city of Jerusalem in his sights, and he has a sense of what lies ahead for him. He knows what, what this action is going to cause for him. And I wonder if another time that the, the voice of the tempter crept into his mind, the voice of the tempter that he heard in the wilderness, all of this can be yours if you bow down and worship me. All of this can be yours. You can be the king that everybody wants and everybody expects. If you but sell your soul to the ideas of power and domination, you can still overthrow the Romans. If Jesus did hear that voice, perhaps it was the spirit that gave him the courage and the ability to to move forward, to walk forward, to, to face what lie ahead. And as they go, Luke says that they uh, they sang hymns and they shouted out the loud, loudly all the deeds that Jesus has done. This is what would happen in a royal victory parade. The people would walk and they would sing hymns and they would shout out all the things that the king had done, all the deeds of power the king had done. We know in this victory parade that they're shouting and they're singing Hosanna, uh, but what sort of things were they saying as they walked along? Perhaps in that crowd that surrounded Jesus, this little parody parade, you have people like Zacchaeus who, who Jesus met just a earlier in this chapter perhaps he's talking about the love and acceptance of people like him of outsiders like him maybe in this little parody parade you have the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years talking about how Jesus had stopped a whole other procession for a very important man named Jairus the synagogue leader in Capernaum had stopped the whole procession to notice her Perhaps there were people talking about the love and the grace that they had had experienced and they had met in Jesus, shouting out for all people to hear the great and powerful deeds that Jesus had done. And I wonder, if I had been in that parade, what would I have said? What deeds of power would I have named aloud for everybody to hear? What would you say? What would we together as a community name aloud for all to hear? So as they make their way, singing hymns, shouting out the great things that Jesus has done, they get right to the edge of the city, and the parade comes to a screeching halt. Everything stops. All the joy and the exclamation stops, and Jesus begins to weep for the city. He knows what the city is about to do to him will have grave grave consequences for them. He says, if only you had recognized the things that make for peace. If only you had recognized the hour of God's visitation. If only you had joined the parade. If only you had joined this procession, uh, the proclamation of a new and a different sort of kingdom. If only you had joined the parade. You know, today is a a really emotionally confusing day. It's the, probably the most emotionally confusing day in the entire church calendar. You know, On the one hand, we have this parade of joy and exclamation and celebration, and then on the other hand, we know this is the beginning of Holy Week. We know that this begins the last week of Jesus' life, that the crowds who proclaim Jesus as king and shout aloud will be the ones who, at the end of the week, call for his death. The ones who proclaim him as king today we the ones who at the end of the week say, we have no king but Caesar. Uh, for all of you who are remembering that musical, um, Jesus Christ Superstar, we have no king but Caesar. Um, how are we supposed to feel on a day like today? It's an emotionally confusing day. I ran across a, a quote from the Episcopal priest, Fleming Rutledge. She was, she was standing in the back in one of her old churches and uh, one of the acolytes had in one hand the cross that she was going to carry in the procession. The other hand had a palm branch, and said, I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to be feeling today. And she said he captures well the ambivalence of today. How are we supposed to feel on a day like today? A day where where Jesus rides into Jerusalem proclaiming a whole different sort of kingdom, a a kingdom that makes way for the things of peace, proclaims a a different sort of world. I'll tell you, for me, it makes me feel a little bit awkward. Um, Because when I think about my life, I know that I already benefit from the world as it is. You know, I have a beautiful home. I, I receive a, a paycheck every two weeks. I have uh, health insurance that's so generously provided by the church because the, the book of order requires you to provide that for me. Otherwise, you wouldn't get it. Yeah, otherwise I wouldn't get it, right? Thank you. Thank you, Donna. Thank you for the Christian love and concern. Uh, hey, I'm conflicted too. You're conflicted too? <laughs> I got two cars, I, um, I have two beautiful children uh, who I know, I know anything can happen, but um, they, they'll have, the world is their oyster, really. They're not only just going to have their needs met, but they're going to be able to dream and imagine things for themselves. And um, I also know that I live in a nation that has the most powerful military on earth and spends more than several nations combined on military expenditures. And don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining about any of this stuff. I'm just acknowledging the fact that I benefit already from the world as it is. And so as Jesus comes proclaiming a different sort of kingdom, a different sort of world, I have to stop and wonder, am I ready to join in this procession? Because it's a lot riskier to join this procession. It requires something of me. It's going to require me to let go of some things. Am Am I ready to join that procession? the procession of a very different sort of kingdom, a, a kingdom that's not defined by how much stuff you can accumulate and how much stuff you can have, but a kingdom that's defined by how much you can give away. A kingdom that's not defined by power and domination over others, but one that is defined by, by forgiveness and love, one that prays for one's enemies. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, Jesus will say five days from now as he hangs on the cross. A kingdom where the king puts his life on the line in love and in grace, not just for the people who walk in that parade today, not just for his closest friends, but for all people that in him is extinguished evil and injustice and hatred and violence and all the things that dehumanize and lessen our lives. A kingdom that proclaims the things that make for peace. It's a lot riskier, the proclamation that Jesus gives. And it's one thing to to believe that Jesus gave a nice message. It's another thing to commit your life to those things, to to join in the parade. And it gives me pause for just a moment. And I kind of just want to watch the parade go by. But as with everything Jesus says, everything Jesus does, it's captivating. And it it offers something to me. It offers me a a life of hope and love. and, And I want to be part of that parade. I want to join in this great procession, proclaiming a new and different sort of world, even as as risky as it is. I missed the Cubs' victory parade, but I don't want to miss this one. I want to be part of it, even as, as heavy as the palm branches might feel sometimes with this proclamation of a different sort of kingdom, I don't want to miss it. The King of Peace comes riding, proclaiming, kingdom of God. Don't miss it. Thanks be to God. Amen.